For we know that since Christ is raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Bridger. Good morning again, church. So glad to have you today. I know we're running a little bit behind time, so I'm going to go as fast as I can. Uh, but I'm also going to preach what I prepared. So, so, uh, so anyway, you can do with that what you want. So a little girl was helping her mom clean in the kitchen uh, one afternoon. This inquisitive little girl looked over at her mom, and she noticed that out of her mom's normally pretty dark brunette hair, there was one white hair sticking out. You know how those hairs get a little more coarse. And so she turned to her mom and she said, Mom, why, why do you have a white hair coming out of your head? And well, the, the mom was probably not having her best day. She was a little worn out, a little tired of the little girl, maybe a little bit as we get as parents. And so unwisely, she turned and she said to the little girl, she said, well, every time I have to tell you twice to clean your room or every time you talk back to me or every time I get angry or I worry about you one of the hairs on my head turns white. Little girl took that in, thought for just a minute, and then all of a sudden she blurted out and she said, Mom, what did you do to Grandma? <laughs> so if you have your Bible this morning, I want you to go to Romans chapter 12. Little girl was on to something. If you were using one of our Bibles from back there, it's page 775 in our Pew Bibles. Um, but as you do, and as you get ready to take some notes today, and I hope you will, I want to tell you a tale of two churches. And these two churches are going to set us up for understanding the church we're going to begin a series about, the church or churches in Rome. Our first story takes place in 1950 in southern Georgia. In fact, this story takes place on an exact date. We have an exact date for what occurred there that day. It was August 13th, a hot summer Sunday morning. In that place, in that day, at this church family, this small church family, a critical vote was about to take place. And the vote was going to determine something about the future of who was in and who was out. Who was core and who no longer had a place there. The issue had arose because of a guy named Clarence Jordan and the guest he was bringing to church. Clarence was a scientist, he was a farmer, he was a follower of Jesus. He had begun a ministry down the road from this church building that was centered on helping the poor and hiring the immigrant and being inclusive into other races. And in the South in 1950, that was very frowned upon. And the vote that morning was because for the past few weeks, Clarence had brought a man to worship with him named R.C. Sharma. R.C. Sharma was an Indian Hindu man. But that wasn't the problem. The problem wasn't that R.C. was Hindu and in need of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The vote that day was taking place because R.C. Sharma had dark skin. And the question and the resolution at hand was whether or not Clarence should be able to come and bring guests 
with different skin color. So on August 13th, 1950, the resolution passed by a two-thirds vote. And the resolution expelled Clarence Jordan, his wife Florence, and any future guests they might try to bring from their ministry down the road. The, the central argument of this church on that day was this, and this is a quote that is written in stone somewhere. It says, The Jordans have brought people of other races into the services of the church and have done this with the knowledge that such practices are not in accord with the practices of other church members. They were expelled. We might say disfellowshipped. Eyewitnesses say that on that day, after the vote, the whole church went silent for about five minutes. The only thing you could hear was a few quiet sobs. And then quietly... After about five minutes, everyone just shuffled out the door. And I tell this story from 1950 so that we can understand a story of a church that took place, not 1950, but 1900 years prior to 1950. The second church story is centered around a group of churches in the city of Rome that's meeting in homes and courtyards scattered around this ancient metropolis. A number of churches. This early church had had a great start. We don't know exactly how or when. History doesn't tell us. But we know that sometime after the resurrection and the 25 years since the resurrection, around AD 57, the church, although it had a great start, was now becoming to find itself as a mess, in trouble. Just as the church was in 1950, it was divided by preferences and power, privilege and tradition. And this church in Rome, or churches in Rome, were at a critical point. If you center in on a problem, and we read with what we know about the church in Rome, the problem was one of pedigree and background. The division seems to be among those who were Jewish Christians who probably started the church, and Gentile Christians who have come along and had a totally different background. We do know from history that in, the, in A.D. 49, the problem was magnified. Claudius, the emperor at the time, was tired of all the trouble that Jewish people of Jewish descent were bringing to the city of Rome, so he put together a famous edict where he kicked out everybody of, of Jewish descent. And for five years, all those Jewish Christians had to leave this early church. You need to imagine that, being a part of that church. Imagine leaving your home church for five years and then coming back. Can you imagine how much would change, especially at the outset of Christianity? So by the time we start to learn about this church family or these churches, A.D. 57, what you have is factions. You have Jewish Christians on one side who have been gone for five years, now come back. Their leadership has been replaced, and they are still interested in Sabbath-keeping, in eating kosher, in knowing the law. They're arguing for their traditions. Then on the other side of the church, you have Gentile Christians who've done what they can, learned how they could. They've lived in freedom. They've seen no problem with getting food that is unkosher or sacrificed even at pagan temples, there is a back 
and forth going on in this church. One in 1950 that divided itself, a church in 8057 that was on the brink of division. And it's the same story, generation after generation after generation, up to the church in 2023. I tell those two church stories because their story is our story. It's the story of every church, of every generation. The same issue has always been at stake. It's the same issue that Paul writes the letter of Romans for. It's the question of whether we will be a people who embody the good news of the gospel or whether we will be a people who will fight to get our own way. So in response to hearing about these churches and never have visited there ever, Paul writes his largest and longest letter. It's around AD 57, the letter to the Romans. It is his greatest work. All throughout history, people have said that. It's his opus. It's his thesis statement on theology. And while it's been seen that way, it is much more. The book we're going to get into for the next seven weeks is much more than just a letter on theology or a how-to book on how to find the righteousness of Christ. This letter is about lived theology. It's about an embodied Christ-likeness. It's Paul writing to a church in crisis saying, here's how to treat each other. And so what we're going to call this, this embodied Christ-likeness, you know it as living sacrifices. Living out a living sacrifice, we're going to call it being altered. Living life on the altar as daily sacrifices. And we're only going to look at the last few chapters. Because after 11 chapters, Paul has built a historical and theological reasons for God and the gospel. He's done all this great work on how God has made the two groups one. And then at the height of his writing, he gets to chapter 12. And he's going to say, because of all these things that have happened, all these things that God has done, this good news of the kingdom, this good news of Jesus Christ, here's what you do in response. So he says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, a familiar passage. He says to them, therefore, I urge you. You can interpret that phrase also as I plead with you. Brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now there's a lot there. And I'm going to break away from my normal style because when we encounter a couple of sentences like this that are so dense, and no matter how familiar, they're still challenging Uh, man, I'm a kid of the 90s. And so, as a child of the 80s and 90s, when you do something like this, there's nothing else to do but to make like MC Hammer and break it down. I'm not going to do that. Okay. 
<laughs> I want to, but I'm not going to. So let's break this down. Paul begins this phrase or this transition in his letter with, therefore, I urge you. It's a double attention getter. If you've read Paul at all, you know that you're supposed to pay attention to phrases like this. Anytime Paul says, therefore, or I urge you, or I plead with you, that is his favorite way of getting your attention. The listener, when they hear, therefore, or I urge you, is supposed to go, oh, I was kind of zoning out, now I'm back with you. This is like watching a movie and the, and the main score of the movie starts to play in the background again and you know something cool is about to happen, right? The Mission Impossible music starts to ramp up and you know Tom Cruise is about to risk his life, you know? Literally, right? That's what's going on. It's like the teachers in elementary schools. You guys know how this works. I love the attention-getting techniques elementary student, uh, teachers have for their students. The, the cla- a certain clap or catch a bubble or stop, I think Miss uh, uh, Risley over here does stop, look, listen. Allison was at a school the other day teaching art the other day. Again, a great 90s, early 2000s reference. And this teacher, to get the attention of her students, started to sing Backstreet Boys. She would sing, everybody. And all the students would go, yeah. <laughs> Thought that was great. Well, this is Paul's version of that. He's going, therefore... And you're supposed to go, I urge you. But anyway, I just made that up. But it's what Paul does. And what's rare is he never combines them, except right here in Romans 12. He takes his two biggest attention getters. And he goes, this is so important. I'm going to take both my attention getters, and I'm going to bring them together. Why? Because you know something about God's mercy. Before I tell you what to do, therefore, pay attention. I'm about to urge you to do something But remember what I'm about to urge you to do. All this command I'm about to give you, all that I'm about to plead with you to do has its foundation and its motivation in mercy. And if you've read Romans recently, you know this. It's apparent. Paul, over and over in the letter, is going to just keep talking about God's mercy. He's going to keep sharing about how we fall short. Romans 3, 23 and 24. Romans 6, 23 is that we have a gift in front of us, and it's God's mercy. So Paul's going to remind us, here comes the attention getter. What I'm about to tell you is coming from a need and a desire and a motivation of mercy, and then he tells us, here's what I want you to do. What's Paul pleading with us to do because of mercy? He says, I want you to be a living sacrifice. I want you to be holy and pleasing. This is true, and the word there is logical. Logikos is the Greek word. The older, some of the older translation says spiritual worship. That is a terrible translation because we mess that word up. The word is true and proper, logical. The logical response to mercy is daily worship, living sacrifice. So we're going to pause on this for just a minute because we need to hear the radical newness of Paul's exhortation here to his original audience and to us. What he's doing is they, like us, know on some level and understand on some level what Paul is up to. He's using temple and borrowing from temple language when he uses the phrase, be a living sacrifice. 
Probably most of his language is borrowing from the Jewish temple to a lesser degree pagan temples, but it's all the same. So for just a moment, maybe we need to transport our minds there to get our heads around this. He says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, I urge you to be a living sacrifice. You need to take your mind to the temple. This beautiful high place in Jerusalem, ornate, gorgeous, structured. It's the utmost importance. It's the centerpiece of everything that you do in Jewish life. But everything in this temple was centered around God and everything that happened or it was brought into the temple had to be dedicated to God. So as you go to that temple, you had to take things that were consecrated, that were not common things. If you were bringing a sacrifice of a goat or a lamb or a bull, or even because you were poor, you were bringing a dove, it all had to be anointed with oil, devoted, set apart. And more than that, not just what people brought in, what was already in the temple proper had to be set apart as well. The altar, the clothes, the doors, even the candles, all anointed with oil and set apart. And Paul's borrowing that imagery of sacrifice, of holiness, of this set-apart, otherness language. And he goes, now you guys, you're that thing. You're the living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. You're the one set apart. This is worship redefined by Paul. Not a building, Not elements, not a song, not a 75-minute service where we just go to worship. Paul is saying, you are altered. You are altered. You are living your life on this altar. This is your worship. It's a truly radical proposition. Paul turning worship and its definition then and its definition now on its head. And he's given it because, remember, what's dividing the Roman church? which we'll get into in the few weeks, especially in chapter 14 and 15 in the weeks to come. It's issues of worship. It's issues of Sabbath and food laws. It's issues of, well, what's essential and what's not. It's who's in and who's out. Who has authority and who doesn't. And we don't have to think very far to think about what divides churches today. Same things. Who's in? Who's out? Arguments about how we worship, preferences, non-essentials, music, postures, traditions, etc. All the things that we've been arguing about for millennia. But Paul's point is this. The thesis statement for the church is this, is that worship is not a place. Nor is worship a list of to-dos or boxes to check. It's not a pattern. It's a way of life. Christian worship, according to Paul, is being a living sacrifice every day, every place, in every way. And I know that's so bizarre for us. But really, this is how we should respond. What are you up to today, Jake? I'm going to the gym. Why are you going to the gym? To worship. 
right? Going to the basketball game Friday? Going to see the Wildcats? Yeah. Lady Cats? Yeah. Where are you going to sit? The worship section. Not because I'm worshiping the cats, but I'm worshiping the Lord and how I treat other people. You want to go out to eat? Where do you want to eat tonight? I don't know. Let's just go where we can bless and worship God. What do you want to go do this weekend? Go fishing with Bryson? Go play golf with Ike? The golf thing's hard for me to worship at, but I will try, right? (laughs) I will do my best. And guys, this is not just some one-off thought. Paul is flipping things upside down from the way that the Romans thought and the way that the Canadians think and the way that us in the the Texans think. But this isn't a one-off biblical thought. This is how the Bible describes worship consistently, Old Testament and New Testament. If you want to look at these passages later, write them down. This is a consistent thought throughout Scripture. God has always wanted people to live their worship, not go to worship. He's always wanted us to be people who by our actions are living examples of worship. We serve a God who is, at his heart, desires a church. Imagine being part of a church that does this. Man, I wish, this is for me, I wish I had the courage to do this. The faith to do this. But imagine being a part of a church where it's our desire to reconcile with each other before we sing one song. That we were having conversations out in the foyer going, let's work this out before we commune. Because you know what? That's God's desire. Matthew 5, 23 and 24. We serve a God who says true worship is taking care of the poor and needy first. True worship. James 1.27 is care for the widow and the orphan. We serve a God who through David in Psalm 51, David says, what you want, God, is a broken and contrite heart. You don't care if I bring you 10,000 different sacrifices. The scripture commends and exhorts and encourages over and over again living daily worship. And it's funny that the phrase is used there is what we often use to argue about worship in here. What is proper? What is proper is worship every day in every way in every place. You see the connection between being a living sacrifice and Jesus, right? He was the sacrifice who is now living and Paul is going, now you follow Jesus and be a living sacrifice. Now that's a lot, and I should wrap up, but there's one more sentence. I want to just very quickly close with this. Because Paul's going to give us a how. He's going to say, be this living sacrifice. And then he's going to go, I want to show you the way to do it. And he says in verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. I'm going to step on my own heart here a little bit. It's a question I can't get out of my mind. And I'm going to ask it to y'all too. It's, it's this question Could it be that the reason I or we don't live lives of daily sacrifice and worship? Could it be that the reason for that is that what 
we have done to the world might not be as significant as what the world has done to us. Do I need to repeat that? (laughs) Could it be that my influence on the world isn't as powerful as much as the world's influence on me? In other words, I'm being conformed instead of transformed. And man, I make all kinds of excuses to get around that. A way to be conformed, but yet kind of sacrificial. I think that's why we argue about a 75-minute service as churches so often, because we can control that, but you don't have to know what I'm doing outside of here. I can just be kind of my own guy. But here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying this, unless you're transformed, there's no middle ground. You will be conformed. Unless you let the view of God's mercy transform you and be renewed in your mind, you will be conformed. We know this. We know this. I think it's also a point here to make that it's unfortunate that we often try to use worldly means to try to solve kingdom issues. Back to our two churches, especially the one in 1950 with Clarence and Florence Jordan. They were disfellowshipped from their home congregation. The church conformed that day to a pattern of their world. Southern segregation. An evil A horrible evil in our culture that still exists in some places and still exists in some hearts of people that confess Christ. What they did was conform to that instead of being transformed by the gospel. But what I love is God wasn't done with Clarence Jordan. I told you his story a few weeks ago. Some of you may have remembered this. Clarence Jordan and his ministry is what began Habitat for Humanity. He kept being transformed, and God took him and changed the world. See, we all have this choice. When it comes to unless you're transformed or you'll be conformed, we all have a choice. Because here's the truth, church, and and we need to all say this with a smile. We're going to disagree with each other on things. Amen? Yeah. Right? We're going to. It's people, right? Church would be great if it wasn't for people, right? It's what you all feel. Church would be great if it wasn't for that preacher. Church would be great if we didn't have that elder. Church would be great if we didn't do this or that. We're going to disagree. We're going to have times where we don't get along from time to time. Welcome to the body of Christ until heaven comes. It's going to be that way. But until then, we have a choice. We can be conformed and we can treat each other using the weapons of the world, gossip and backbiting and strategy and politics. And then we'll continue the history of the church, dividing, creating factions. Or we can climb up on the altar, which is the cross, lay down our pride and be altered. I hope you'll join us on that journey. Hope you'll be here for the next six weeks as we think about and talk about what this looks like. Because guys, what this all comes down to is all of us being on the same level playing ground. It's at the foot of the cross. 
And at the foot of the cross, even when I disagree with you or we don't see eye to eye on a scripture, you know what I have to do at the foot of the cross? I have to turn to my neighbor. I have to turn to my brother and sister who I may not like at the moment or may have a very difficult time getting along with in the moment and I have to see that the blood of Christ is on them just as it is on me. It's all about mercy. And the transformation we walk into begins there. I want to close with this level or this lesson, sorry, on mercy from a group of fifth grade students. It comes from Steve Hartman and uh, on the road as these students looked out and saw others in need and here's what they did. This is so good. At Glen Lake Elementary in Hopkins, Minnesota, recess is a mixed blessing. On the one hand, there's so much to do. But on the other hand, not everyone can do it. It just didn't seem fair that some kids were just left out. And it's really sad to see other kids go through that. They didn't look happy in recess is about having fun. Glen Lake has a lot of students with physical disabilities. But no wheelchair, merry-go-round, swings, or any adaptive playground equipment whatsoever. Which really bothered the kids in Betsy Julian's fifth grade class. To the point where one day they asked her, why can't we just buy the equipment ourselves? I said, do you know how much that costs? Yeah. It costs a lot of money, $300,000. $300,000 by her estimation. But the kids were undeterred. They started collecting spare change, then held a bake sale printed flyers and went door to door. Then they began cold calling businesses and even got restaurants to donate a portion of their profits. This went on for months until last week when they hit their goal. We were all very happy on the inside and on the outside. The smile on my face, I could say, was an ear to ear smile. I was just really happy. So I did. Reese Riley says they worked so hard. It was overwhelming to finally know a more inclusive playground would be coming. You're a good kid. And as for the kids who will benefit, they seem to appreciate the effort almost more than the result. First time I set foot on this playground, I'm probably going to start crying. From seeing the effort that all the school has made. Mrs. Julian couldn't agree more. My future as an adult is bright knowing that this generation of students, of changemakers, see something that needs fixing, and they go for it head first. The whole thing. Head first and dive deep. What's our next step? After raising the 300000 Mrs. Julian's class set a new goal, to the ceiling and beyond. They now hope to buy adaptive playground equipment for other schools in the district turning loneliness and isolation into child's play. Steve Hartman, on the road, in Hopkins, Minnesota. Isn't that great? Um, You might say, well, what does that have to do with church? That's not the church, Jake. That's just a group of students. Well, here's what I believe, and I believe that Scripture backs me up on this. All truth is God's truth. So anytime you see sacrifice... What is that? It honors God. And I think some fifth grade students have got it figured out much better than I do. 
God, guys, is not interested in just your Sunday. And he wants all of you. Not because you're bad and not because he hates you or not because he's trying to get you. He wants all of you because he wants to use you. Because he's got great plans for you. Looking forward to these next few weeks as we unpack Paul's vision of here's what the church can look like when they climb up, carry a cross, and live altered like Jesus. If you need anything today, we're here for you. I know it's a little late. Let's stand together and we will sing. As morning dawns and evening fades, you inspire songs of praise. To touch your heart and glorify your name. Your name is a strong and mighty tower. Your name is a shelter like.